If you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to Genesis 18? We're going to be looking at the first 15 verses of Genesis 18. Um, crazy world out there this week as I took a day off on Friday to do shopping and tried to get in the Costco parking lot for 20 minutes only to discover that it was impossible to get in the Costco parking lot. So thought I would run to Superstore and got a parking spot and went in the door only to be greeted by the manager and another lady who had her shopping cart right beside me that had just come from Costco. And she told me she made it into Costco, but they told her at the door, I would go and put your cart back because literally every aisle was jam-packed with carts and they couldn't even move through the Costco at this time. And then, um, so the manager at the superstore said to me, if I were you, I would go home and shop later. Uh, there was up to a two hour wait to get through the teller or the checkout at superstore. And so I went to save on foods and got all my groceries and walked right up to the uh, self checkout. And it was a wonderful experience. So the moral of the story, go to save on foods right now. Got to pay a little more, but it's a better plan, I guess. Genesis 18, 1 to 15. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may, be ref that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, these three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said unto him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. <clears throat> the woman who had ceased... Uh, had ceased to be with Sarah. Sorry, the way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, Am I worn out and my Lord is old? Shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the appointed time, at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. And Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. For she was afraid. No, but you did laugh. 
That's our text this morning. Would you pray with me quickly? Lord, we ask that you would come by your spirit. Thank you that your word is living and active. And so we ask this morning that you would speak by your spirit, awaken our hearts. Would you grant to us the gift of illumination that we would see wonderful things in your law? We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's siesta time. Morning chores have been complete, and now everyone has disappeared to a cool spot to take a nap in the hottest part of the day. And while Abraham is just about to nod off, he looks up and he notices that he has guests. Now we know that Abraham's guests were the Lord and two angels, but it would appear at this point that Abraham has no clue who these guests are. We're not sure if Abraham didn't see them because they supernaturally appeared or if he had just maybe nodded off. But what we do know is that he lifts up his eyes and he all of a sudden sees three men standing in front of him. Things kick into high gear pretty quickly. He offers them water to wash their feet, and then he offers food and rest so they might be refreshed before they continue on. This kind of hospitality would have been normal in in the Near Eastern world. To not do what Abraham did would have been strange. And so siesta time quickly turns into a whirlwind of activity. Abraham goes to Sarah, his wife, and asks her to quickly make some cakes. And then he ran to his herd, and he took a calf. He personally selected a calf, tender and good, verse 7 tells us, and gave it to one of his young men to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and put it before the men. Now, this had to take several hours to uh, cook this calf make this bread, these cakes, and all that was going into it. There are only three guests, but this meal that had been prepared is extravagant. Six gallons of fine flour were baked, plus a whole calf. And then the meal was served with curds, yogurt, and milk that would have complemented this meal very well. In verse 5, Abraham tells them to rest while he brings them a morsel of bread. This was so much more than a morsel of bread. This was a feast. But the text is not about the meal that Abraham prepared for his guests. Nor is this text about Abraham's hospitality gift. This text is about God as anywhere we look in Scripture, is about God. It's about a God who is a friend to those who are failures, who are often filled with unbelief and struggle to trust and believe God's promises like Abraham did. That's what this text is about. We read in Isaiah 41, verse 8, this is what the Lord says, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, 
the offspring of Abraham, my friend. God calls Abraham his friend. Abraham is a friend of God, not on the merit of his consistent faith and trust, not because he perfectly followed through on all that God had told him to do. He's called a friend of God because God chose to set his affection on him and make him his friend. It's a friendship based completely on God's amazing grace. Grace that was greater than all of Abraham's failings and unbelief. The friendship Abraham experienced with God, we know through the new covenant is now open to you and I because of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus, in John 15, verses 14 and 15, says these words, You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For for all that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. We're going to have three points from this text this morning. We're looking at three points out of the text. The first point we have in the title of this sermon is the friend of sinners. My first point is the friend of sinners comes to dine. He comes to dine. What was the purpose of this visit? Was Abraham going over the top with this meal because maybe by now he was starting to put pieces together and he understood that this was the Lord and he's thinking to himself, man, the Lord's here and in light of kind of how this has been going down in light of my failings, in light of my unbelief, I, I wonder if he's upset with me. Let me bring a big extravagant meal and see if I can appease him. I've done a lousy job at trusting him and believing his promises. Maybe he's thinking he's probably here to let me know that I'm too old and he's moved on. He's going to find someone else to to fulfill his promise. I mean, come on. Abraham is 100 years old and his wife Sarah is 90. All hope must be gone at this point that God will fulfill the promise that he spoken to them. Last week, Pastor Lee shared with us that we learned that God is never late. God is never late and that he is always on time. But we also know that God is never in a rush. Oh, aren't we always in a rush? God is never in a rush. The friend of sinners is right on time. And this meal, this meal is a divine appointment. God could have showed up in various ways, but God chose to come and to meet with Abraham and to dine with him. In spite of his unbelief, in spite of his struggles, God decided to come and dine with Abraham. Now, this is the only case before the incarnation that Um, that the Lord ate food that was set before him by someone. This was a special meal. It was a covenant meal that he was sharing with Abraham. Uh, Robert Candlish says of this text, 
It is a singular instance of condescension, the only recorded instance of the kind before the incarnation. On other occasions, this same illustrious being appeared to the fathers and conversed with them, and meat and drink were brought out to him. But in these cases, he turned the offered banquet into a sacrifice in the smoke of which he ascended heavenward. But here, he personally accepts the patriarch's hospitality, partakes of his fare, a greater wonder than the others, implying more intimate and gracious friendship, more unreserved familiarity. He sits under his tree and shares his common meal. Kent Hughes says of this, the meal with Abraham was an exercise of spiritual intimacy. To dine with Yahweh at the table was and is the ultimate honor any mortal could have in this world. This friend of sinners has come to us as well and longs to dine with us. He's not reluctant to come to us. He doesn't come begrudgingly. He comes as a friend. He loves to dine with those who are his friend, and he is a friend of sinners. We sing a song here, once your enemy now seated at your table. Aren't you glad that Jesus is a friend of sinners and that he loves to dine with us? He has invited us to sit at his table. John 14, 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. We will come to him and make our home with him. In Revelation 3, to a lukewarm church, the church in Laodicea, we hear Jesus speak the truth to them, remind them of their bankrupt state, and then he calls them to repent, and then we read these words. Verse 20 of Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now we would think after what the Lord has just said about this church, that he would just come down on them and say, the ju- my judgment is on you, there is no hope for you. But he, what, what, what does he do instead? He's a friend of sinners and he says to them, if you'll open the door, I'm knocking at your door. If you open the door, I wanna come in and I wanna dine with you, I wanna eat with you. Can you hear his voice this morning, Crossridge? He stands at your door and he knocks. You might say, yeah, but, but you, you got to understand, there is so many times where there's so many failings. I've missed the mark. I, I, I've, I've done a lousy job of keeping my focus and looking to Christ. In spite of all that, this morning he knocks at your door and he wants to come in and eat with you. He stands at your door as the friend of sinners come to dine with you. Second point, the friend of sinners comes to restate the promise. He comes 
to restate the promise. In verse 9, they said to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? Now, initially, upon the arrival of Abraham's guest, it would be safe to assume that Abraham did not know who these guests were. But as the story unfolds, we see little hints that maybe Abraham is putting the pieces of the puzzle together. In verse 2 and 3, Abraham bows, which is a proper honoring of deity, and he addresses one of the guests as Lord, as the sovereign. The leader of these three guests made a promise to Abraham that only the Lord could fulfill. In verse 10, we read, the Lord said, all uppercase, the I am Yahweh said to him, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Only God could promise offspring. The leader of the guests demonstrates his omniscience by, we remember in, I think it was verse 13, where Sarah uh, laughs and she's hiding. She, her, she's behind the tent and yet this guest identifies himself as the Lord and understands he saw her, he, he saw her laughing and saying, says, why did she laugh? Now we know from Genesis 17 <clears throat> that the Lord had already communicated this to Abraham. Several times he had already communicated that he was going to, through Abraham's seed, raise up uh, a great nation. But in Genesis 17, verses 15 to 19, we read this. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kingdoms of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. It's amazing how often when we feel like God is not living up to his promises that we have means and ways to help him. And here even Abraham is suggesting, Lord, this is probably a better way. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son and you shall call his name Isaac. And then in verse 21, the Lord says, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Now, what we don't know, we're not sure if, if Abraham had communicated to Sarah, his wife, that the Lord had appeared to him and said, this time next year, um, <clears throat> could it be that he, he was struggling so much himself with just the impossibility of this actually taking place that he decided to just keep it to himself. 
Could it be that he thought, I don't my, want my get my wife's hopes up? It's, this, is, this is ridiculous. And only to just see her, her hopes dashed. I'd rather protect her from being hurt. I mean, there's a specific date being given to Abraham. What, what if it doesn't happen? Why risk serious disappointments? <clears throat> I think of the... Lloyd-Jones talks about in one of his books, I think it's called Spiritual Depression, he talks about uh, talking to ourselves versus listening to ourselves. I think we spend most of our day, we get up in the morning, we, our feet roll out of bed, and sometimes long before our feet roll out of bed, we've already started uh, uh, listening to ourselves. And Often what we're listening to is very subjective, very driven by our emotions and our feelings. And uh, that's why some people get out of bed and then quickly get back into bed because <laughs> they're just so overwhelmed by their situation. And Marlo Jones talks about the need to talk to ourselves versus listen to ourselves, to proclaim the objective truths of who God is, of what Jesus has done for us in spite of us, of the promises of God. And what we see with Abraham here is Abraham is, is obviously spending far more time talk, or listening to himself than he is talking to himself. The promise has been clearly uh, articulated by God himself, and yet Abraham is, is absolutely convinced this is impossible. So in chapter 17, we read that he laughs when God tells him. I like, how it's, I like what it says that he fell on his face and laughed and, and said to himself. I think one version says that he, he uh, tucked his head down and laughed silently or something, as if the Lord could not see that. Now Sarah is listening at the tent door behind the Lord in our text, and she laughs to herself. She says, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Ian Duguid says of Sarah here, she seemed to be a reluctant believer. <laughs> oh, isn't that all of us? She seemed to be a reluctant believer, like so many of us, he said. Sometimes, this is so good, this is, this is worth your visit to community group this morning, okay? Sometimes God's good news seems just too good to be true. Isn't that the gospel? Sometimes the fact that Jesus is a friend of sinners who has who longs to dine with us and longs to come and restate his promises to us just seem too good to be true. He goes on to say, even God's word was initially unable to break through her doubts. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Verse 15 says that Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And the Lord said, no, but you, you did laugh. In spite of Abraham's unbelief, 
his failure to trust God and believe. In spite of Sarah's unbelief, her laughing, her melancholy, her hopelessness, God dines with Abraham to restate his promise. And I love this. He doesn't do it once, but he does it twice. Sometimes we need to hear his promise not once, not twice, not three times, but four times or five times or six times. You see, Abraham and Sarah's unbelief cannot abort or sidetrack God from fulfilling his promise. You need to hear this this morning, Crossridge, that your unbelief will not sidetrack God from fulfilling his promises. Your listening to yourself versus talking to yourself will not sidetrack God from fulfilling his promises. Do you believe that this morning? Or do you think he's had enough of me? He's had enough of my inconsistencies, my ups and downs, my faithless moments. I love 2 Timothy 2.13 that says this, one of the shortest verses in the Bible, but a power-packed verse. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Oh, that's the best news. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. In 1 John 3.20, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. What I love about that is he knows everything about your doubts and your unbelief, and he's greater than your hearts. God is greater than your hearts. This is not a negative that God knows everything. This is very much a positive. This friend of sinner comes to restate his promises. He comes to us again and again through the scriptures, doesn't he? And he reminds us of his promises. Now, the conclusion must be this. If God knows me and is committed to me like this, then what seems impossible is very impossible to him. And this leads us to my last point this morning. This friend of sinners is the God of the impossible. This friend of sinners is the God of the impossible. In verse 14, the Lord says these words, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, there was no way that Sarah could give birth apart from something miraculous taking place. Wouldn't you agree? She was infertile in all her life, and now she is 90 and postmenopausal. One commentary said this, she was doubly dead in respect to childbearing. She was doubly dead in respect to childbearing. The promise was ridiculous according to human thinking. It was impossible. And that is our God. 
He loves to step in when the situation is impossible. He's the God of the impossible. Now this question, is anything too, for the, too hard for the Lord, is tied to a promise made by the Lord. And listen to this. Make sure when you're encouraging others with these words or praying them yourself, nothing is too hard for the Lord, that it is tied to the promise of God. Make sure. Don't go asking him for a carefree life, a BMW, a new wife, a large bank account, because you won't get it. Why? Because those aren't tied to a promise. We know that everyone's very familiar with the text in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And we've heard this taken out of context a million times as people say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. We hear athletes say, and I can, I can be Michael Jordan through Christ who gives me strength, and no, you can't. <clears throat> I can be LeBron James or whoever you think you, you could be, Connor McDavid. Uh, try as hard as you want. That text is not saying that we can gain things and we can do things because God gives us strength. If we actually take the t- the, read some verses prior to I can do all things, Paul's saying, I've learned a secret. I've learned to have little and I've had plenty in the middle of it all, whether I have lots or I have very little, I can go through those situations because it's God who strengthens me. Make sure that when you're saying God is the God of the impossible, it's tied to a promise. Promises like the promise of forgiveness. When we read in Micah 7, 18 to 20, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? Listen, he does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Or how about the promise that we are children of God in 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. What about the promise that not death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, what this text is not saying is you have made this uh, 
iron will determination that nothing is going to separate you. No. You know what? The, our, our reality is, is that we are up one minute and down the next minute. We are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. One minute we're passionately pursuing him. The next minute we're chasing whatever the big thing that just blew up in our face and we, we're, we're chasing it like it's our God and worshiping it, giving all our time to it. No, the reason why nothing will separate you from the love of Christ is because God is a friend of sinners. Because God has has come to dine with you and wants to continue to dine with you because God has given you precious promises and because God is the God of the impossible. Nothing is too difficult for him. So when you're going through difficulties, when we're experiencing something right now that, that none of us have ever experienced, we don't know what's coming tomorrow. We have no clue. Then maybe there's a new normal coming. But in all of it, the promise here is that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Why? Because Christ has a grip on us that will, he will not let us go. I remember a friend of mine told an illustration in his sermon one time of being out at the beach and his little girl who was three years old was holding his hand and the waves, big waves were coming in and smacking them and she was holding on to him and she was kind of thinking like, hey, look at me, look, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this. But what she didn't realize is he said, my grip on her was far stronger than her grip. There's a song that I love. The line says, and if my hold should ever fail, this wondrous love will never let me go. My hold fails again and again, but the promise here is that the God of the impossible will not allow me to be separated from the love of Christ. For nothing is too hard. Nothing is too impossible. Nothing is too difficult for our God. Many years later, we hear these similar words uttered by the angel Gabriel to a virgin. In Luke chapter 1, 35 and 37, Gabriel tells her she's going to bear a son. Mary replies, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Gabriel replies, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Kent Hughes says of this, God leaves his signature on his redemption plan by bringing it about through impossibilities. Through a menopausal woman at first and then through a virgin at last. And we are meant to conclude only God could do this. When we look at our lives and the lives of others in this church, 
when we see the work of grace that God alone has accomplished, we must conclude only God could do this. Church, he's a friend of sinners who comes to dine with you. He's a friend of sinners who's come again and again. And he'll continue to come again and again to restate his promises to you by his spirit as we open the scriptures. And he's a friend of sinner who is the God of the impossible. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what hope we have in seasons like this of uncertainty. How easy it is to listen to ourselves and to forget that you long to come to us. That you long to restate your promises as we have this glorious book where you have spoken to us in it. These are your words and you want us to open this book that we would again and again see your great and precious promises. Father, you want to remind us that in seasons like this, there is nothing that's too difficult or too hard or impossible for you. So give us eyes of faith to see. Help us to trust you. And help us to walk in a manner worthy of this great gospel. I pray that we would start to talk to ourselves. And in this season, that we would begin to reach out to neighbors and friends with the hope of Jesus Christ. Awaken our hearts to who you are. Fill us afresh with your spirit, I pray. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.